And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Pat O'Connell with us, a communications consultant for high-tech corporations in fields such as varied as nuclear power, aerospace, and antibody library solutions. She is also a researcher, novelist, nonfiction author, electric interests from science and medicine to history and psychology to metaphysics and, of course, the paranormal. And she helps individual clients manifest their own book publication dreams. And through it all, she remains an activist for truth and freedom. Pat, welcome to the program. Thanks, George. Thank you for inviting me. And condolences on the death many years ago of your husband, Jim. He was a true pioneer in this field we're going to be talking about. Yes, that was my brother. That was my youngest brother, Jim. Good guy. Yeah. How did you pick up on many of the things that uh, Jim uh, was working on? Well, you know, he and I talked all the time. I, You know, I just adored my brother, and he, he made me laugh. And, you know, he had this... Um, he, he believed he had been abducted by aliens, and it took him a long time to come to that realization. He kept denying that was happening, and, you know, he convinced himself that it was, uh, that he was just having these weird dreams. And when he finally accepted that possibility, um, he began pursuing it, and be, he began talking to other people who had had these experiences around the world. And uh, so he was developing a TV reality show about abductees. Um, and so, you know, he was, he was wanting to acknowledge the experience they've been through, whether it was real, objectively real, uh, or just some kind of psychological phenomenon. It affected their lives profoundly. And so he was putting this show together, and he had met, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people around the world. Well, he called me one day, and he said that he had uh, this one case here in Texas. He was in Connecticut. My brother was in Connecticut, and I'm here in Texas. And he said, you know, this guy is having, I mean, this is not just one story. This isn't just one abduction. In fact, the guy denied that he had been abducted. That was one of the things that didn't happen to him. But he said, there were so many things that were happening to him that he said, I can't possibly cover this story in a one-hour episode or even a three- or four-episode arc on my TV show. So he wanted to know if I would be interested in, first of all, vetting this guy, meeting him, and uh, finding out, you know, is he a nutcase or is he the real deal? And... Second, would I be interested in, because I was a writer, would I be interested in writing a book or multiple books or a screenplay or all of the above? And so, you know, when he told me a little bit about what was going on there, I'm like, yeah, that sounds kind of interesting. And sure, you know, I'll meet the guy at least and see what he's up to. And then Jim said, and by the way, this guy says he shot and buried an alien. Oh, boy. And I'm like, Holy cow, I'm in. So, you know, that was, I was off to the races right there. Was this the case that the late Jim Mars was trying to investigate? No, actually, Jim Mars is a friend of ours and was. And um, that the case you're thinking about was in the 1890s, 1897, I uh-huh. think, in, in Aurora. And I'm actually friends with uh, um, Daniel Allen. Jones, who is now the 
current expert on the Aurora case, and he also was friends with Jim. That's how we became friends uh, with Jim Mars. I miss that guy. Oh, God, yes. All the great researchers, Stanton Friedman, Jim Mars, all the great researchers are gone. Well, what did you think of your brother Jim's stories when he was telling you that uh, he may have been abducted? (laughs) You know, that's a really good question. You know, when when he first told me uh, that he thought he'd been abducted by aliens, I said, well, you know, Jim, either you're crazy or or you've been abducted by aliens, either way, it seems to have a positive effect on your life. So, you know, it was, it, it gave him, it gave him a purpose. It gave him some, something interesting to pursue. And, um, you know, never for one minute did I think he was really crazy. Uh, and, and so, you know, he was, he was one of the three brothers of mine who all had um, UFO sightings, and I was kind of envious that I never had one. Now let's uh, talk a little bit about you for a moment, Pat, then we'll get into this incredible story of your book, Bleed Through. Tell us a little bit more about you. Well, you know, I'm kind of all over the map. I consider myself a, you know, the good kind of skeptic. Um you know, I I am open to possibilities, but I'm not a pushover. So you're going to have to convince me. It's I think it was Carl Sagan that said extraordinary claims demand extraordinary proof. That's right. And so you know, I will debunk things, but I I want to I want to know. I want to believe. I'm like Fox Mulder. I want to believe. And uh, you know, so I love exploring possibilities and. You know, as a writer, I've done, you know, technical writing, um, and I love science, but I've also done, um, you know, pure fiction. Uh, And I kind of like to do techno thrillers, and with a little bit of paranormal now, I'm starting to weave that into my my novels, too. So, um, you know, I've, I've been through the gauntlet of corporate, good for you. You sound like a late friend of ours, Dolores Cannon. You've, you've got her yeah. kind of energy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, I, I'm just fascinated by life and I'll never retire technically uh, because I love what I do. That's perfect. I think the same way. And you know, it, it keeps you young too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. Now this particular project that your brother, did he hand off it to you or after he died, did you pick it up? it up after he died because you know I was I was interviewing Clay um, you know my husband and I had met with him multiple times we had gone down to the airport well, and tell us who Clay Wheeler is okay Clay Wheeler was a uh, an aircraft repair technician um, and I think he was really more than that <clears throat> but he um, had his own business at this little airport and he 
repaired airplanes, um, and he had been doing this business for at, at the at the airport for maybe ten years before any of this craziness started, and then um, all of a sudden in 2010 he started having these experiences, and they kind of ramped up and took him by surprise. And um, and they they happened over a period of three and a half years before he finally ended up having to move out because it just had gotten so crazy and ruined his life. But um, that's who he was. I mean, he was he was a, a very serious person. Uh, some of the people that I've talked to say he was uh, very particular. He was very meticulous. Uh, about his work and the cleanliness and the orderliness of the of the hangar and the shop and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, really interesting guy. And I assume he's no longer with us. Yes, unfortunately, both men have now passed, and that's you know that's where I was stuck. I mean, after my brother died, Clay and I were still in contact. Uh, we you know we had talked probably multiple times a day, either on the phone or through email, for a year or two. And then after my brother died, um, you know, we were both kind of floundering. What do we do with this project? Uh, Because we were all doing it. We were both doing it for Jimmy. And, you know, this was supposed to be Jimmy's project. And... um, so then, you know, after after Clay died, I mean, that was the double whammy for me. I had all this material, and I sat on it for a good two, maybe three years, not really knowing what to do with it. And I knew that I couldn't step into my brother's shoes. He right. he knew all this stuff about um, the film industry and the television industry and all the drama and how you play the politics and everything like that. There's no way I could have done that. And so I knew I couldn't, I couldn't pick up where he left off. And, um, but I knew I could write a book. So I had, I had enough material to write a book. Um, and that's, I figured I had to do at least that to honor the memory of both those men. What did you think of Clay Wheeler's story, which we're going to get into in a big way here, Pat? But uh, did you believe him? You know, when when Jim told me that, uh, told me kind of all the things that were happening to to Clay, the, the claims that he made, uh, I thought, you know, this is really crazy. But I had I had known a little bit about the Skinwalker Ranch story, and and I'm, when I say that. I mean the story uh, before uh, even Bigelow got involved. Okay, so that's, this was when that's way back, a, way back. Yeah, so when it's just a rancher couple who are living at, at the ranch and weird things are happening, blue balls are fly, floating through their house, and uh, they see a portal uh, that, you know, the, the guy 100 feet away can't see, and, uh, you know, a giant wolf and a UFO and little, you know, things like that. So I was familiar with that. Um, so I thought, I, you know, I, I thought that there was a lot of stuff that I could probably debunk, but I was open to anything that might be left over after I've, 
you know, separated the wheat from the chaff, basically. Did you set out to debunk it or to enhance it? Well, my for me personally, being being the skeptic, I wanted to sort out the stuff that's easily explainable because I wanted to find the evidence that I that would convince me. So when Jim said that that and Clay both said that you know there was a whole lot of evidence, a lot of photographic evidence, I was really excited. And then when I finally saw the photographs, I could explain away some of those things. But what was still left was the credibility of Clay's own story, the the credibility of his experience as told by a person who believed it really happened. And so when it came down to it, I was ready to throw away it. You know, toward the end, I was ready to throw away all the photographs. Now, there's a few things in there that were still I couldn't explain. Um, and But what, what was most compelling to me in the end was his story and watching his body language. I mean, you know, he would say uh, in one of the last interviews, I said, so was this a positive or negative experience overall? And he said, well, I guess it was a negative experience overall. But instantly, his demeanor changed. His eyes lit up. He kind of turned his head looking toward the sky. And he said, but you know, it was kind of like it was fascinating being out there on the runway at night and looking up there at the sky. It was like being in the, on the sci-fi channel every night. Truly remarkable. So, now, exactly where was he at Sparks, at the Sparks County Airport, which is in, is that the one in El Paso, Texas? No, actually, um, the, the location is fictionalized because, <laughs> and, and, you know, as I said, um, the, the kicker when my brother was telling me about Clay's story was that he supposedly shot and buried an alien. Well, the kicker is that when we met with Clay and interviewed him, he said, I may have booby-trapped the body. So, and, and knowing Clay and the fact that he had, we're in Texas, everybody has guns, and Clay had a lot of guns, and he had the potential to, if he wanted to rig something with explosives, he could have. Why, why would he do that? That's a really good question, George. And I've, you know, I've thought about that a lot. But um, I, what I, what I've come down to is that I believe that toward the end, um, he had such respect for whoever these creatures were that he felt he felt like it would be almost sacrilegious to you know, to, to take it around or to have somebody dig it up or whatever. Um, Yet he was the one who apparently shot the creature, right? He, he was, he was. And, and when we get into his story, I'll, I'll, I'll get you to the point where, you know, he, he was so strung out because of all the other events that had happened that he was carrying guns with him and he was scared. Did he have other witnesses, Pat? Yes, he did, and I'm still in the process of tracking them down. I've I've managed to find one so far. Have you talked to that person? I 
have, and he didn't witness any of the aliens. Um, I mean, so you don't know if he's backing up Clay's story or not. Uh, he, he backed up some of the paranormal stuff. Which we'll get into. Yeah, and, and he, he thinks where Clay uh, attributed these things to aliens, this witness attributes them to uh, demonic Mm, that's possible. Well, and and Clay, after a while, he he's he was saying that he uh, he got photos of of demons. He had um, this crazy one night in his living room. He saw what he what what he said looked like a plasma angel. It was this blue kind of a energy source in the middle of his living room, and he said, and then this demonic kind of energy, dark energy, came up from the ground and started interacting with this angelic feature. And, and it was, he said it was almost like the, the dark figure was trying to molest the angel or something, and there was, it, was, it was almost like it was acting out this kind of play of, of good versus evil yeah. right there in his living room in, the, in this plasma kind of energy field. Did Clay so, Wheeler ever take a polygraph test, Pat? Uh, no, he did not, and uh. I wish he had. He, he had agreed to do uh, hypnotic regression and polygraph, and we actually have a polygraph expert on our team now, so um, I, I really, really wish we could have, you know, Ask him. Oh, that would have been something, yeah. How old was yeah. he when he died? When did he die? When did he die and how old was he? He was in his mid-50s, I think, and oh, he died guy. in November of 2016. What did he die of? Well, that's a long story and, and, and questions <laughs> having to do with that. But uh, he had, in the three and a half years, when all of this stuff started happening at the airport, he got sicker and sicker and sicker. So hmm. by the time he died, the doctors, all I know is that he, um, when I contacted his sister, I hadn't heard from him in a while, and I contacted his sister to say, you know, is he okay? And she said, no, he's in the hospital. He has uh, multiple organ failure and... Um, flesh-eating bacteria, and if he survives, Gosh. they're going to have to cut off huge areas of his skin. So that's that's where he was at the end, but there was this long decline in his health throughout the three and a half years. All right, hold on, Pat. Let's talk more about that, then we'll get into the story of Clay Wheeler. Your book is called Bleed Through, A True Story of Aliens, Demons, and Pure Evil in Texas. And welcome back to Coast to Coast, George Norrie with Pat O'Connell. We're talking about her work, Bleed Through, A True Story of Aliens, Demons, and Pure Evil in Texas. Well, that subtitle tells us a lot, Pat, doesn't it? Oh, it does. I mean, I was hoping that in, you know, in this next segment, I can get into some of the crazy things that happened um, so that your audience can understand what drove 
clay to the point where he shot and buried an alien. Absolutely. Now, let me ask you this. With regards to his death, do you think there was any foul play involved? Uh, Actually, I do. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So let's talk about Clay Wheeler. He's at the uh, airport in Texas. It's called Sparks County Airport. He's a, he owns his own mechanical company. Right. What happens? How does this start? So, you know, he, he was living at this airport. And you have to understand, it's not like any airport you think of. It was He was the only person there at night. And he owned this hangar building that had his shop, the hangar, uh, and an office in between. And then he had a little apartment. On so, the other so it wasn't an airport that planes flew into at night, I assume. They could. I mean, there were runway lights, um, so they could land there. Uh, it, it was just, it was an uncontrolled airport, I think. that No traffic controllers? Nothing like that, right? No. Nope. That's weird. No, you just had to, you know, it was like first come, first serve if more than one plane showed up. Um, but, yeah, so it, it was it was really, really quiet and really, really dark because it's in the middle of nowhere. And... Um, he he started out um, playing kind of laser tag with dots in the sky, lights in the sky. And they would move in very strange ways that aircraft can't move. And he, you know, be, being a, a pilot, an instructor, a flight instructor, and an aircraft repair guy, he knew what what, what aircraft could do and what couldn't. And you know, that sort of thing. And so he would do this, and then it was almost as if uh, he taunted them. And so that started to draw them in closer. Maybe it made them mad. I'm not sure what he thought. But um, he started having, you know, conventional, not conventional, uh, the kind of UFOs we hear about, like the... uh, Bob Lazar's sports model and the Mexican hat style. But he had other craft that came in. Um, and, you know, there were some, there was a, you know, a Mexican hat type craft that came out and hovered over the runway. I mean, he, it, it was, it was scared, it scared him to death. Um, and it was the first time it happened. So, you know, he didn't know what to do about it. But um, as time went on, he he saw that he could kind of summon these craft in with the lasers. And so one night he was out there, uh, his crew was working late, and, you know, a handful of people were working late. And so he said, you know, watch this. I can, you know, we can, we can draw the UFOs in. And so he was playing with the laser, and this craft started, or this light started moving around in strange ways. And then the next thing they knew it came in closer, and they could see that it was what he calls hard shell eyeglass case shape. So, um, you know, kind of oblong, and um, he said it came in closer to, to where they could see the shape. And so he's shining the, the light at it, and, uh, you know, he was trying to get some of the other ones to, here, here's the laser, why don't you? And they're like, no. And so he shines it at the at the craft again and it comes closer and now it's kind of overhead and he said he started to get this really weird feeling he said it was like somebody poured 
a bucket of water in his head, and it was flowing down inside of his body. And he he said, um, and then he got this horrible headache. But he he told his friends that you know they were really worried about him because he this this headache was worse than he's ever had. Right. They they yanked him away into the hangar, and when they came out, it was gone. But you know he's one of his you know he said to his friend, I think. I think they were trying to communicate with me. It was like, I think it's like what a computer would feel like when it's downloading information, which I thought was a really cool concept. Now, are these friends or witnesses you're trying to get a hold of? Yes, yes. I'm. We're, we have people on our team who are tra- trying to track down some of these witnesses. Okay. But, um, but his, you know, he said, I think they were trying to communicate with me, and his, one of his friends said, no, I think they were trying to kill you. So now this eyeglass... The eyeglass case-shaped craft shows up again later on in the story, and um, and it's actually toward the end of his time out there. But in the meantime, he's actually seen now aliens there. Over what period of time, Pat, was he witnessing these things? over three and a half years and why it started in 2010 and it hadn't happened for the 10 years before that almost 10 years before that I have no idea why the only thing I know is that the county drilled for oil in 2019 and culminating with the death of the alien pardon me culminating with the death of the alien stopped all this um no. Oh. No, the, the alien did not stop all this. Um, he, so let me go back to the point where he was seeing, he was actually seeing aliens. Um, so the first time he, he actually encountered aliens, he was, he was. Uh, this is all, was, all at the airport. Yes, this is all at the airport. Now he's, he lives there. So he's in his apartment at the other end of the hangar building. Okay. And um, so one night he couldn't sleep. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and he couldn't sleep. So he decided he would call his sister, who was working in China at the time. And he knew it was middle of the day for her. So he picked up the phone, and he called her, and he's talking to her. And he was kind of a fidgety, you know, ADD kind of guy. And so he was talking and with the phone and and walking around and just absently goes to the door that went from his apartment into the office that was between uh, his apartment and the hangar. And he opens the door and he said, you know, it only ha- it only took a few seconds, but he said it, it, it was like, you know, when you, you feel like you're, you're about to die and your life passes through. You know, before your eyes, where it, it the time just kind of expanded. He said, he, I opened the door, and on my left, there were two gray aliens, small, about three and a half, four feet. And he said, the weirdest part was that when I, when the, when the door came open, the two aliens moved out of my way like they were joined, like a gate. A single gate would move. They moved out of his way. And then he said when he looked to his right, there was this tall alien that was tan 
and he said it, it was must have been naked. There, you know, he didn't see any, see any clothes, but there was no features. So it was like a Ken doll. It was just this featureless body, but the head was huge, and the eyes were large, and they were bulging out. The the lids moved from the top and bottom. It blinked from the top and bottom. And he said the back of the head bulged. It had these two bulges. And he said, I knew right away that the big guy was like the bodyguard for the two little guys. And he said, then the big guy took a step forward or lunged toward him. And he said, I dropped the phone, closed the door. And, you know, it was hours before he was prepared to go back. Was he ever abducted, Pat? You know, I, he, he claimed that he wasn't, but the things that happened to him sure had all the hallmarks of abduction. And he, he was willing to do a, uh, a hypnotic regression uh, to find out. But, but as far as he knew, as far as he was aware, he said, I don't, I don't know if I've been abducted. He never had any of those uh, leftover feelings. Like my brother Jim had dreams that he was abducted uh, or memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Clay never had anything like that. Nothing. Okay, so tell us what led up to the shooting of this alien. Okay, so uh, now there, are, there, have been, there were multiple uh, occasions where there, there were the little grays that were in, in his uh, uh, shop. And on one occasion, he was, he was there uh, after hours in the shop, and um, there was this gray that shows up. And at this point, he's had so many things happen that now he's scared. He doesn't know what these creatures can do, uh, what they intend to do, and so he's carrying a gun with him. He's got a gun on his workbench. He's got a gun on his hip. Uh, and he's, you know, he's scared. And so he's in the, in the hangar one night, and he's, he sees this, this little gray alien, but he said it had a breastplate on its chest. And shot from this breastplate a like a laser beam, like this energy beam, four inches in diameter kind of thing. And he said it shot through everything that was in the hangar. It it just completely vaporized anything in its path. And it shot a hole through the outside wall of the hangar. I mean, this is corrugated steel. It shot a hole through that. And so that was like, okay, these guys can kill me <laughs> and they might want to kill yeah, me this is serious business he's this saying is serious business so now he, he's he's amped up even more the fear is amped up even more so as time went on when another one shows up and i think he was he was alone in the hangar at the time um he just shot it and Actually, there was there was another one before that, and and a couple of his uh, employees were there. He shot it. He shot an alien. It fell. It fell, and he said that it it uh, outgassed um, some kind of liquid or something, and there were there were fumes. And so uh, he and the guys that were there left the hangar 
because they weren't sure, you know, what kind of toxins were coming out of this these fumes. And when they came back, the alien were, was gone. And so, you know, he said he was kind of hoping that the alien paramedics had come and gotten, got, you know, that, that it wasn't dead because he didn't really want to kill these guys. He wanted he desperately wanted to communicate with them. He wanted to know what they know. And so he had this this fear, hate, um, fascination thing going on, you know, all these conflicting emotions. Um, so when that that second one came and he shot it, but it was gone when he came back, but it left a, what he called a helmet, but he said it was more like a, like a, a skull cap he said it was hmm. really thin and so like um, part of a uniform or something yeah yeah uh, yeah i can't imagine that it would have been protective but we don't know what kind of materials they have maybe now the one that he shot and killed has he done that at this point no that's that's the last in that sequence of three uh when he shot it and killed it and there you know the body did not disappear and um, he he had this dead alien in his shop. And that's the one he buried and wired up and did all those yes. things. Yes. Now, what got him to think that these could be demonic, not extraterrestrial? Well, now that's what uh, one of the witnesses that I talked to thought. He actually, Clay actually saw, I mean, he believed these aliens were aliens. But separately, there were demons and demonic uh, influences. And and that's why it's similar to Skinwalker Ranch, because it's not just UFOs and aliens. Okay, so all these weird things are happening there. Yeah, I mean, he had poltergeist stuff going on. And like I talked about that angelic plasma thing, you know. So um, he, you know, he just had so much going on that... Um, it was like one night he saw a portal open up and he said it, it was open for about an hour and it wasn't like what you would think of as a, like a hole or a circular thing. It was like a doorway and it was like it was pulled open and he said all these craft came out and creatures came out. There was what he calls the man walking wolf. So it was like a wolf walking on its hind legs. And um, so, you know, he, he he had seen all of that. And when the portal closed, um, he he had his camera out there. He was taking snapshots. And so the portal closed, and he goes out to get his camera, and he thought, well, let me just um, take another picture or look through the camera. And he said when he looked through the camera, he saw what looked to him like – a, he said it was red and wet. It was like a devil, like the devil was pushing itself up out of the ground. Like Lucifer. Yes, and he said it scared the crap out of him. And he left the camera, ran into the into the hangar, closed all the doors, and you know, so that so when it got into the demonic stuff. That's when it really, I, I, I can't say that it really worried him because, you know, an alien that can shoot a laser beam through your shop, that's pretty scary too. 
But the demonic stuff started influencing the behavior of the people out there. Pat, we're going to take a break. And uh, you talked to his mother, and she uh, told you something that changed the way you looked at everything. We'll talk about that when we come back. And we'll open up the phone lines to give you an opportunity to talk with Pat O'Connell about this very strange story.